Okay, so today we're going to look at a passage that, you know, ultimately I find very perplexing. Not so much in the general content uh, that Paul wants to speak on, we, we, it, because for the context here, Paul is wanting to bring up to these Thessalonians that they are really to take heart that they need to save sexual intimacy of, of mental, emotional, and physical, save it until marriage. And they, they are to keep sexual intimacy within the marriage alone, between one husband and one wife. And, and we'll go over that in another sermon, but that's not the perplexing part. The part that spins my wheels a bit here is how Paul approaches the subject. I mean, I find it a bit backwards, at least the way that I would want to approach something, especially on such a big issue of sexual immorality that was happening within the church. For there's no doubt that these people were having sexual sins infiltrate their life. These are not innocent people in this area amongst each other. And I mean, though we're not going to go over the text as a whole today, I just want you to listen again to what Paul is addressing here amongst these people. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, stop. Run, flee. That each, of, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. I mean, this is what's going on amongst them. Ugh. You know, this is, this is big stuff. This is not good. And just to be clear... Paul at no, at no time approved of the sexual immorality at all. But rather than just crush them and say, do better, be better, what's wrong with you? I'm disappointed with you. I'm shocked that you could ever do this as a Christian, etc., etc. He approaches them with the grace of God by which they are saved by. And lets the grace of God be the motivation and empowerment to remove them from pursuing such sin. Or put differently, Paul has been giving them the good news of the gospel again and again. And he's been doing this throughout the letter. And from the very beginning, and now he's going to do it even more so. Very impactful. For truly, the gospel alone, as Paul knows, is what motivates people to create a deep gratitude unto God so they can flee from the sins in their life. And that is important. that's an important principle for us all to look at and think on as we look at this text of chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Looking at his approach with them that, that has their sin in the back of his mind, how he comes to believers who are dealing with sins in their life. Sins that are affecting others in big ways. For ultimately, what we see here is that with really any sin that we struggle with, it's not God's law that motivates us to repentance or a changed life. It's not the law which is righteous and is good. The law doesn't give us power to change our hearts in disgust towards sin. 
For the law exposes our sin, but it gives us no power to do anything about it. For really, the law has no effect upon our hearts that bring out real change. So what can bring the real change? What can create a true repentance to create in us a real desire to want to change and be empowered to do so? Well, as Romans 2.4 says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, not his law. Telling people, for example, they need to be more loving does not make them more loving. They just fake it better, or they just grow in hate towards each other more. So how do we see God's kindness? How do we learn about his kindness? How do we know his kindness that brings about the repentance of our ways? It's the gospel message. It is the gospel that melts the hearts and empowers true, meaningful change. See, the law reveals our desperate need of a savior, and the gospel reveals how God unconditionally fulfilled, fulfilled all our needs, how he unconditionally did that, and more so through his son Jesus, which by faith in him consequently makes us repent of our sins and follow him out of gratitude and love. So we're going to look at our text and hear the unconditional grace of God in action towards his people. Our title is A Gospel Approach Towards Sin. Really amongst, amongst believers. Paul says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, Finally then, brothers, we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through Jesus. So with Paul here stating, finally, he's not at the end of the letter, but he's saying we are now entering the very practical part of the letter that's directed towards the very issues that's going on with this beloved and believing church. We are now in the process of getting real personal and all up in your business. But rather than just going straight for their sin, and for our context, the sin of sexual immorality, Paul first appeals to their faith in Christ, which they, which they share together. And he does this by calling them brothers or his family, that though they are not biologically related to each other, they are spiritually now one family of God. They share the same Father, the same Lord, the same Spirit. They are now in the one true God as the beloved children. So right off the bat, you can see him speaking out of love and care for them as his own. And to press this loving approach more, he says, we ask you, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Meaning that in his heart, he is passionately requesting and heavily encouraging them to remember that Christ is Lord over everything in life now. And that through having faith in Christ, they have confessed that. Confess that Christ is Lord over everything that they see, that they do, that they feel, that they say. That having acknowledged that Christ is the one who is in control of all things and is ruling now over their life. That no longer are they captain of their own ships. They are not in command of their own destinies. Christ is. He is Lord. They are now a people who have a favor upon them 
And they have now entered into an eternal kingdom that is growing amongst them and within them, to which they now follow after. They are citizens of heaven with the Lord himself as their king. It is the Lord that, it is that Lord that Paul appeals to who is over them that he says, that he's speaking to here. Paul then continues by saying, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Meaning, remember, as Christ's representatives, we taught you that since Christ is Lord of your life now, through faith in him, that means you should be living it. With Paul saying how you ought to walk, he's saying, be what you already are. Implying that having Christ be Lord over them through faith has made them into a new creation. So their lives ought to reflect this new creation as one who has a true Lord over them. Or put more bluntly, by saying Christ is Lord over everything, your life ought to reflect that he is Lord over everything even you, even over the tiny, mundane stuff that you think doesn't matter because it does matter to God because he is Lord. And if you don't believe me, read the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. You know all those laws and little things that you fall asleep in that ruin your uh, reading habits to try to get through the Bible through a year? All those tiny things, you're like, what in the world? This is crazy. Who pays attention to this stuff? I couldn't pay attention to it. God does everything. The tiniest of things. It does matter to God. To be Lord of all means all, not just some. We like to think some, but it's all. Which is why Paul says, how you ought to walk, live, and please God. Meaning we taught you that your life now is to always, in everything, be characterized as Christ being Lord over your life through faith in him, through now living according to his ways with everything. This is how you please God. You're not the standard. Christ's standards are the way. And really, that is the key point here. How you please God. This is the key point that Paul brings out to them and is really reminding them. Here's the thing. Having their lives be, be one that is pleasing to God, okay, follow me here. We tend to think this. It's so much bigger than being a moral person. Being moral is not the basic issue here. Paul is not necessarily concerned with being this moral person. The, for example, the scribes and the Pharisees were quite a moral group of people. From what, from what Jesus revealed, they did not live lives that were pleasing to God, but were a stench to him. It says in Matthew 23... 27 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Meaning, he says, which outwardly appear beautiful. You're moral. But within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. 
So outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you you are full of hypocrisy and lies. So what Paul is speaking here of walking in a manner that is pleasing to God, he's not necessarily referring to a bunch of do's and don'ts. He's not referring to a list. It's something so much deeper. Paul is speaking on growth in following after the ways of God by faith because you trust him with your heart and you want to please him because you love him. It's more than just a duty or a right thing to do. Anyone can be virtuous. An atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God, they can have strict morals and abide by them. And I'm sure you know of people who are not Christians and for the most part are decent people. They're probably better than some of the Christians that you know in your life. But Christianity in regards to living a life that is pleasing to God, it's not just a life that is chasing after virtues or morals for the sake of being moral or being virtuous, for the sake of being right, because it's right. If that's what you think Christianity is about, you have a misconception. Rather, Christianity, now that you have faith in Christ, is about taking joy in following what God wants. Taking joy in seeking his ways. Taking joy in living to his standards above all else, all because you love him. Responding to him out of gratitude for what he has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ, who is now your Lord through faith in him. This is how we please the Lord with our life. Now, church, pay attention. Because you would think now, after Paul bringing all that up, right, this idea, those heavy concepts, having reminding him that through these words, in the beginning of verse 1, you would think that he would now just come straight at them and dive into their sins of sexual immorality. Be like, aha, look, Lord of your life. What are you doing? But no. Rather, Paul says, knowingly, what sins they are committing. And I mean, you can see that. It's coming up in verse 3. And we know what he's going to talk about. Paul here instead highlights something else that's kind of profound. It's taken, takes me back. He says, how you ought to walk and please God just as you're doing. What? Why, why would he say this to, his, to these people who he knows are dealing with sexual immoral sins? Now, again, Paul's not affirming the sin of sexual immorality. Okay, He's not affirming it, nor is he okay with it. He will point out that sexual immorality is wrong. Very strongly, he will say it. He will say it's wrong and it is sin. Don't do it. But again, that's not the point that we're looking at or paying attention to. We're paying attention to how he is approaching their sin, how he's bringing it to light. Notice he's not shocked or horrified, nor does he assume that they are automatically non-believers because of their egregious sins. I mean, I mean it's egregious. But rather, he chose to start with pointing out and seeing their fruits of faith in their life. 
and encourages them to see it too. So when he says, just as you are doing, he says he is seeing them begin to live with Christ as Lord in areas of their life. That they're already living in this way that is pleasing unto God, and now he wants them to grow in this more and more, which he says, that you do so more and more. So rather than just caught up in their sin alone and get all heated about it, this big sexual immorality sin, which is gross and nasty and horrific, he chooses first to remind them and point out to them the real change that has been happening in their life since they have been saved. For example, he's already pointed out in chapter 1, verse 9, that they have turned from idols. He pointed out how they kept their faith in, in Christ in hard times, as he says in chapter, six verse, or chapter 3, verse 6. So Paul here is saying that they are on the right path of growth and maturity in Christ. They are going the right direction. But going the right direction means there's still more ground to cover. More to bring willingly to Christ to be conformed to his ways in their life. Because he's Lord. Which, by the way, is true of all of us. We all have areas in our own life that need to be brought into conformity to Christ's ways. Or more for the context, things in our life that should be done out of motivation of wanting to please the Lord, not just being a moral person, right? It's not just the bad things we do that should be brought into the Lord, the Lordship of Christ. It's also the good things that we do that need to be done because we want to please God and not just have one up on people. Which is why he says in verse two, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So Paul here is basically saying, look, when we brought you this gospel, we brought this message to you so you could have freedom from the power of sin and death in your life. And as we presented to you the gospel, we spoke to you of all the things that Christ has forgiven you for. And you took hold of it by faith in him and have acknowledged already that his ways are right, his standards and expectations are correct, and you have begun to live that way, which is great, and I'm thankful for that. But you need to keep going back to the gospel to see how truly free you are now from your sin. For the gospel is not a one-time thing, but an everyday thing to be looked upon, to see how Christ has fulfilled all the requirements of the law for us, so that we can rely upon him to empower us to be conformed to his image and his ways, all by faith in him. For in Christ, Paul here is saying, by faith in him, you are already fully accepted. As you are doing, right? So live from that more and more. Pursuing a life that wants to grow in pleasing the Lord in all things. You're doing it, so do it more. Do you see how Paul is coming in and setting this up? He comes to them with their sins in mind, not as the moral police, but as an encourager, appealing to their heart before God by pointing out how they have already grown before God. 
sparking, trying to spark this interest of joy of them wanting to see how they can continue such a growth in pleasing the Lord. He says, you're doing it. Like, we are? Yes, that's great. What else do we want to do? What else can we do? Paul here is basically promoting them to ask, to ask questions of themselves in all areas of life and not stop. Questions like, is what I'm doing pleasing to, to the God who loved me? Is the way of life and the way I'm living, is this bringing glory to God for what he has done for me? Is how I'm living revealing that Christ has conquered my sin, has overcome my shame, and is now Lord of my whole life, and now I have a full restoration with God all by faith alone? Is what I'm doing showing this? See, he's setting them up to want to repent of their sins that he's going to bring up, to want to repent of them and leave them because of how awesome God is towards them through the work of his son. Creating a sense of a greater and greater longing out of love and gratitude to want to please God in all things. As it should be with us. We now as believers should always go back to dwell upon what was done for us through this gospel message. That God saw us in our sins, all of them, past, present, future, before we were even born. And he did not want to deal with us. I'm sorry, he did not want us to deal with his eternal wrath and punishment of hell because of them. But he couldn't just let us go free. A payment had to be made. So out of love for sinners, he sent his son to be punished for all of our sins in our place. All of those sins of lying, perversions, sexual immorality, fits of anger, jealousy, pride, doubting, fear, worry, self-righteousness, judgment, uh, judgmentalness, a lack of love, brutalness, unkindness, and the list goes on and on of all the unspeakable things that we do that we would hate to talk about here in this room. God said, I love these people, sinners. I love them. And I'm giving up my son for them. So they can be with me and know and experience my love forever and ever and ever and ever. So then, in our relationships, okay, your relation, all the relation in your brain, think of all the relationships that you have. Good, bad, and the ugly. Okay? Your work habits, whatever work you do, whether it's at actual work or work at home or work amongst people or in this church, whatever. Think about your financial spending. Think about your spending of time. We should let this passage create in us the question of, are there things in my life, are there, th are there things in my life that I need to bring into conformity to the teachings of Christ so as to be pleasing to our God because I want to please him in this? To show how I have been freed by Christ and his gospel of grace? See, freedom means you want to follow after the Lord according to his ways, not yours. To show 
how Christ is Lord of, over everything. Not to earn anything from him. God just gives and gives and gives. But the fact that he gives and gives and gives should be the motivation to reveal to all and acknowledge by our life and to our God that all has been earned for us already in Jesus Christ by simply having faith in him alone. Or put it differently, let me, let me be more direct. Do we look upon our sins and say we don't need them because Christ has already conquered it and what he has to offer is better? That's pleasing. And through that, we show to all and to God that what Christ has attained for us is better by following after his ways with whatever it is we face. This is why it is pleasing to God. Because we're showing we are growing in trusting in what his son has earned from us, or earned for us by being obedient to him in these things. Not to save us or to even keep us saved, but to show our gratitude Growing in love for him, towards him, with everything. Jesus Christ said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we reveal that, our love, the more we conform to the ways of Christ. The more we are obedient to his commands. Not to earn, but because we want to. That's the question. Do you want to follow the Lord in all things? Not just some. Not just Sunday morning. But when you're faced with that nasty person, when you're faced with that temptation and that thought, do you want to be obedient? Now remember, the gospel that empowers this obedience. It doesn't come from self-power. It comes by looking to Jesus, having faith in him that just receives his blessing through wrestling with him. Because the gospel declares this. This is the freedom that you have. That even if you don't obey and you fall flat on your face, God's love for you never ceases and your salvation does not end. That's the good news that doesn't make sense. But it's that very news that changes us. Because we're saved by Christ alone and his obedience for us. All the obedience that was necessary was done by Christ. And as we delve into that, knowing that even if I fail in this, Christ still loves me. That should change us by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to live lives more pleasing to God in all things to make us repent of our sinful ways before him for his glory. Not because we want to be right, not because of it's a duty, but because of love. For the gospel is good news. Praise God for the gospel. <laughs> because I know even I will fail the moment I walk outside of this door. Probably have failed a zillion times even here at this pulpit. 
preaching his good news. That God is good, even when we're not. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We will have a song response. And deacons then will come up. And after the service, you can come talk with them if you'd like. Heavenly Father, God, help us. Help us to see the freedom of the gospel. That we are not only free from our sins, but we are free to fail. And Lord, let that empower us because your son has accomplished it all. Lord, as, that, as Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is lovely, pure, think upon these things. Help us, Lord, to focus in on the lovely and the pure of your gospel to empower us to flee from our sins out of love for you because you loved us first. Thank you, Lord, for that wonder. God, if there's someone here that doesn't know you here today, that is, that, that, that Lord, you are pricking their heart right now, Lord, I pray today they come to know salvation, that they see the love that you have for them, and the proof is, the, is your son who died for sinners, for them. And Lord, I pray for those who are struggling with major sins in their life, who are believers, that are thinking that is there no end. Lord, help them know that all of it has been conquered even if they can't see the end, the end has been declared when your son said it is finished. And let them rest in that finishedness that your son has made and done forever and that they can simply trust and trust and trust. Thank you for the gospel. I pray this in your son's name.